think I've got a mic. Good. Thank you. I am so excited, actually, to talk to you guys about Gerard because Gerard has been so important to me in the last few years, but especially in the last two years or so. And I was excited to follow Angie because I think we're going to be addressing some of the questions that she brought up. So we heard Dave talk last night and a little this morning about what our mission is as Blue Ocean, that we're making an experience of God's goodness accessible to all. And so during this session, Dave's asked me to focus on this accessible to everyone portion of the mission. And when I think about those words, I actually I think about them from two angles. So first, that means that everybody can be part of it, right? That no matter who we are, male, female, gay, straight, Asian, African-American, white, First Nation, able-bodied, differently abled, we're all offered a seat at this table on equal terms. And so that's one way that our message is accessible to everyone. But from a second angle, making God's goodness accessible means that we're able to articulate our story intelligently to people who haven't heard it. And that this articulation is compelling, even if people don't ultimately ascribe to it, that they won't be able to write it off as like simplistic or mythical or having nothing to say to the real world. I was struck by what Angie said because she was like, you know, so much of the language that we've been using talking about Jesus has been such a turnoff to millennials because they're they're tuned into power. They're tuned into colonialism. They're talking about decolonizing Jesus, and these are really important tasks that we have ahead of us, and maybe especially in this post-election season. So I'm going to focus a little bit more on this second angle this morning, and to unpack that a little bit, I first want to tell you guys two stories, and these are two stories from along my own journey. So first, about 15 years ago, I was in my mid-20s, and one of my roommates in Ann Arbor was from Hong Kong. So he was Buddhist by tradition, and he was atheist by conviction. And so one night we were downstairs and we were just talking and he was genuinely curious about my Christian faith. And not curious in the like, oh, I'm seeking faith for myself, please tell me, but more like in a, oh, that's interesting that you think that, tell me more kind of way. And he was especially interested in how the idea of like God killing his own son did anything at all for humans. Like, why did that make any sense? And so perhaps like some of you, I grew up with a substitutionary atonement view of the cross. And in a nutshell, that says that God created humans to be perfect in the Garden of Eden, but that humans had messed it up by disobeying God and thereby bringing sin and death into the world. And so all of humanity then was worthy of punishment because we were sinful and we were unworthy of being in God's presence. And so somebody needed to be punished, and so God sent his innocent son to die in our place. Well, I had recently come off of that view by the time I was talking to this roommate of mine, because of all the normal questions that I think a lot of rational people ask, like the one that my roommate was asking. You know, what does it say about God that he murdered his own innocent son? And how does a wrong, murdering an innocent, how does that make a right? And how does that make God good? He sounds a little bit scary and abusive. Like, I wouldn't want him to be my dad. So I'd rejected that narrative, and I was newly armed with N.T. Wright and a, a newly embraced Christus Victor view of atonement. Christus Victor just means Christ the victor. And in a nutshell, Christus Victor says, well, God created humans to be perfect in the Garden of Eden, and they messed it up by disobeying God, right? Same as before. But this time, somehow, Satan kidnapped humanity, or enslaved us, or held us captive. And so God sent his son Jesus as like a blood ransom to be paid to our captor, to be paid to Satan or to death for our freedom. 
Right? So he ransomed us. He bought us back because he loves us and he wants us to be free from evil and death. And Christ was victorious in doing that. And so I'm talking with this roommate of mine and he's asking me all kinds of good questions. So first off, he doesn't buy that humans even need rescuing. He's just like, well, you know, look, evolution's working out the kinks for life to continue. And he doesn't believe in Satan. You know, I understand that term differently than I did at that time. But at the time, I think I still pictured Satan as like this literal chief being among all of the evil beings. And and maybe he is. I'm not sure that that's how I picture him now. But right off the bat, my friend is like, okay, so this is a little bit weird. You believe in this being that I don't believe exists came and kidnapped and enslaved humanity. So first, how, how could you even know that that happened? And second, like if this God is so powerful... Why would he pay a ransom to this captor? Like, you don't pay ransom to kidnappers. That just emboldens them to do it again. Like, why wouldn't he just go and rescue you guys without having to sacrifice his son? And why is his son, in, like, human form, no less, the payment? Like, how does that work? How does this innocent blood either buy or or release your freedom? And I honestly could not answer in ways that I felt were intellectually honest. And I thought, gosh, you know, understanding Jesus in this way, it requires us to swallow a whole lot of ideas at once for it to make any sense. And even then, I'm not sure that it makes that much sense. And I just thought, what's compelling in this story for my friend? And so this and some other conversations took me to a place of having to say, well, you know, some things are just mysteries. And we might never understand exactly why this kind of transaction had to take place or how it worked, but it, it seems to be true. And so I was willing to sit there, but it just didn't settle well with me. So my second story, this happened a few years after that. I was living in western China as a missionary for three years, working mainly among Tibetan Buddhists. Now, a high percentage of Tibetans are illiterate. And so, absent the written Bible, missionaries were trying to figure out a way to tell our Christian story to Tibetans. And so there were people who were working on boiling the Bible down to 12 three-minute stories. These stories could be memorized, and then they could be sort of spread around the the Tibetan community. And so a friend of mine who was working on this project, she let me read the stories because she was a little bit concerned that as they were being translated, they were communicating a pretty fundamentalist view of scripture, and she was hoping that I could suggest some changes. The final story of the 12 was summing up the book of Revelation and the Christian hope, and it was like left behind on steroids, and... It essentially left the, the, the listener thinking that the Christian hope was for Jesus to come and destroy the earth, and hopefully you'd already ridden into the clouds. So I rewrote it, and I sent it as a suggestion, and I'm not sure to this day if they used my rewrite. But I thought, gosh, here we are. We're talking with Tibetan Buddhists who are by conviction pacifists. And we're inviting them into a story where we're being told that our hope is a God who kills his own innocent son and then destroys the entire world and all of his enemies. You know, like, what's the better story? I I wasn't sure it was ours. What Tibetan is going to follow that God? And so I've been thinking a lot over the years about what it means from the points of view of people who don't have anything invested in upholding our story. And I found myself just feeling like I lack the tools to communicate it effectively. I mean, I could talk about my own experiences with Jesus, which are meaningful. But I've always been like a really deep lover of scripture. And it just bothered me like I felt like I was missing the nub of it. Like when you've got a word on the tip of your tongue that you just can't quite come up with. Until about nine years ago, when I took a class on postmodern theology at Fuller Seminary. And I was introduced to the work of Rene Girard. 
Now, we all know there's many lenses through which we can make sense of the Bible, right? We can read the narrative through the lens of exile and return. We can read it through the lens of the earth being God's temple and of God restoring this earth temple and the humans as the priest in this temple. And so I look at Gerard as yet another lens, but I have to say that for me, his lens has provided the single most helpful lens that I've ever come across through which to read scripture, especially regarding the death and resurrection of Jesus. So that's why we're going to unpack some of his thoughts today, because I think he can help us tell our story better. So first, who was, who was René Girard? He was a French man. He was a historian and a lit crit at Stanford University for decades. He actually just passed away, I think, last year. So after studying literature from around the world, he studied ancient literature, myth, he studied modern literature, and having studied history... Gerard started to notice a particular human pattern that seemed to describe and explain cycles of human violence. Right, so he, he provides the basis for a theology of violence, really. I'm going to do my best to outline his theory in short here. So first, he said that all violence begins with mimetic desire. It all begins with mimetic desire. Mimetic just means imitative. So he says all humans have desire, and all desire is imitative. So I want a new iWatch because you want a new iWatch. I was just reading an advertising book that was, it was written by a professor at UPenn. It's called Invisible Influence. And let me tell you, advertisers know about mimetic desire, and they love it because they can exploit it. In fact, it is biologically wired into us. So we learn to be in the world by using mimetic desire. So like when I lift up my arm like that, your brain is sending signals as if you also are lifting up your arm, even if your arm isn't up. So just watching me do this causes something called your mirroring system to activate in your brain. Now, luckily, we have some other overriding systems that keep you from, you know, doing the same thing I'm doing all the live long day, because that would be fun. But the brain acts like what it sees. And this helps babies and children learn to be in the world, right? They learn to smile by watching us smile. They learn to walk by watching us walk. So mimetic desire and imitation isn't in and of itself bad, right? It's helped us humans survive. It's helped us learn how to operate in the world. But it can become bad. And there are two ways that it can become bad. First is if we take on someone else's destructive desire, like drinking too much too often because all of your friends are drinking too much too often. And second, if it leads to envy and rivalry. Because when more than one person desires the same thing, and they both can't have the thing, rivalries begin. Right? We know this. If you have children, you know this. We know this intuitively. You have two friends at work who are both vying for the same promotion, and they both can't have it, and all of a sudden they're talking badly about each other because they're trying to tear each other down to get what they want. Well, Gerard says that envy and rivalry, in turn, leads to increased anxiety and tension within groups. And those groups can be anything. It can be a family. It can be a company. It can be your church. It can be a sports team. It can be a nation, whatever. And if this tension builds enough, it hits a tipping point, and it turns to violence. And he says that if the group can't find an outlet for the violence, it will turn on itself. If it plays all the way out, it turns on itself. Within a nation, you would call this civil war. And so what humans discovered over time, says Gerard, is that in order to save their groups from self-imploding, the group members would identify a scapegoat on which they could project all of this group anxiety and all of the envy and all of the rivalry. And that scapegoat could be one person or that scapegoat could be a group of people. And they could be singled out for anything that makes them different. 
It can be their sexual orientation. It can be their race. It can be stuttering. In high school, it can be like the kid with the uncool hair. Being an immigrant, it can be anything that makes them other. It could even be the 1%. The rich and the powerful have been just as vulnerable to becoming scapegoats as anyone in history. And after the scapegoat has been identified, then a larger group succumbs to a sort of mob mentality. And they falsely accuse the scapegoat of something taboo so as to dehumanize them. So let me give you a more concrete example. In the wake of 9-11, our culture reached a peak anxiety level. You know, we were anxious for our own safety. We were fearful of more attacks. We were feeling a rivalry with Muslim extremists as to whose view of the world was going to sort of win out, influence us. And we were really at a precarious point when we could have turned in on some of our own citizens of Muslim faith and background. Right? And there is precedent for that in our country. Right? We've had Japanese internment camps as, as little as, what, 70, 80 years ago. But instead of the infighting or rounding up our own, our president instead turned our heads toward a scapegoat in order to unite us. And that scapegoat was Saddam Hussein. Now, don't get me wrong. Saddam Hussein is no innocent man. Right? He was terrible. He tortured some of his own people. He was horrible to them. He deserved to be tried in an international court of law and locked away. But the thing is is that scapegoats are almost always innocent of the crimes of which they're being accused when they're being scapegoated. Scapegoats are almost always innocent of the crimes of which they're being accused. And in fact, more often than not, the accusation being made against the scapegoats is actually true of the mob itself. So when we went after Saddam Hussein, what did we accuse him of having? Weapons of mass destruction that we said he planned to use on civilians which it turns out he didn't have and therefore couldn't use. It was a false accusation. But who does have weapons of mass destruction? We do. In fact, we're one of the only nations to have ever used them on a civilian population. But psychologically, it felt better to project our group anxiety onto him. So that way, instead of all against all, it becomes all against one. And it's a good feeling. So from my perspective... What I noticed in our recent election was that there was one particular politician who was trying to make scapegoats of several groups. And there were three prime examples, and it's by no means limited to these three, but as a good example, illegal Mexican immigrants, legal Muslim immigrants, and African Americans. Now remember, according to Girard, first you falsely accuse the scapegoat of one of the most taboo crimes in culture to dehumanize them. So what were these groups accused of? Well, illegal Mexican immigrants were accused of being rapists. And some of them, we assume, are good people, right? But they're accused of being rapists. Muslim immigrants of being terrorists infiltrating our country. I've heard Black Lives Matter talked about as being a terrorist organization. So they're accused of rape and terrorism, two of the most taboo items in our culture. And these narratives, they serve to help make these groups other so that we don't feel so bad when we put measures in place to purge them from us because they're not us any longer, right? They're rapists and terrorists, so we have to do what we've got to do to protect ourselves. But the funny thing is, is the FBI crime stats say that immigrants are no more prone to illegal activity than the general population. However, one in five women over the age of 18 in the United States are sexually assaulted not by illegal Mexican immigrants, but by American citizens. One-fifth of American women are sexually assaulted by American citizens. 
And the vast majority of terrorist attacks and mass murders in our country are carried out by white American men, not by Muslims, not by black people. And there are, of course, exceptions. You know, 9-11 being a significant one. But I looked up some FBI crime stats, and they they looked at the years between 1980 and 2005. And of the the terrorist attacks that had happened between those years, 94% of them were from non-Muslims, homegrown Americans. We are the rapists and the terrorists. And we are a very violent people. But when we succumb to the mob mentality of scapegoating, we project that onto them. They become the violent ones instead of us having to figure out together why our society is so violent and what kind of work we need to do to solve the real issues. And this similar dynamic takes place in families as well, in smaller systems. In family systems, the person who's labeled the black sheep serves as the scapegoat for that family. They get to carry the family's sins and anxiety. Sometimes it's the kid who gets picked on in class who serves as the classroom scapegoat. In the case of the larger church today, the LGBTQ community gets to carry that burden. And so the projection of sin and anxiety onto the scapegoat has the effect of unifying the mob against the scapegoat. Right? It's instead of all against all, it's all against one. And in fact, it even unifies people against the scapegoat who would normally defend the scapegoat. And once the scapegoat is carrying the projected anxiety and shame and collective sin of a group, it is bullied, exiled, isolated, fired, killed, and or deported. And this system works. It works for achieving group peace. It works. Organizing around, beating up, getting rid of the scapegoat does bring peace and unity to a larger anxious system. And if the scapegoat is actually killed or exiled, if it plays all the way out, the relief of having that scapegoat gone is so strong that the person or the people who were once thought of as like so horrible, who were going to bring such calamity upon us, are now thought of more kindly. And then they're often remembered in nostalgic terms, even eliciting pity. And Gerard says this feeling of relief is so strong that ancient people often deified their scapegoats. But no one in the mob feels guilty for what they did to the scapegoat. Because so many people are activating this social mechanism together, the guilt is dispersed. Nobody has to own it because everybody's doing it. It's a quote from Dr. Sandra Schneider. She's a Jesuit theologian. She says, As antagonism toward the scapegoat spreads through the crowd, it becomes a mob, a single collectivity moved by motives for which no one is responsible, at least until the next morning when some individuals begin to wonder how they ever could have participated in what happened, not what we did last night. But the renewed peace that miraculously descends on the group now that the victim is gone proves that the destruction of the scapegoat was something that needed to happen. So the scapegoat then, if they're still alive, they won't receive an apology from anyone in the mob. And if someone does apologize after the fact, it's a rare occurrence, which we'll come back to and visit in just a moment. The thing about scapegoating is that it ultimately makes a group unsafe. Because once a group uses the scapegoat mechanism to relieve group anxiety, eventually they'll have to have another to keep the peace. Because scapegoating doesn't address the sources of the underlying anxiety, whatever those sources are. So our sources of anxiety in our country after 9-11 weren't really addressed. And so now we're trying to find new scapegoats to deal with the exact same anxiety. And Gerard says that this cycle will eventually repeat, whether it takes months or years, sometimes even decades, if those sources aren't addressed. 
So Girard identified this pervasive cycle of violence in human literature and history and myth, and then he noticed that the Bible does something different. He says it does something unique. The Bible seems to unmask this system of violence, and it seems to offer ways to counter it and to break it. And so seeing this, he actually converted to Christianity as an adult. I think he was in his 40s. So that leads us to ask, okay, well, how does the Bible then unmask this cycle of violence? And you guys, I wish I had like five hours to go through a whole bunch of Old Testament stories. I am going to breeze through a couple of Old Testament stories so that we can, we can focus on Jesus. But the Bible opens with the story of Adam and Eve. We know this story, right? It's a story that talks about a garden with two trees in the center of it, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we're told that the humans were told not to eat of that second tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because the kind of knowledge that eating of that tree would bring, being able to judge between right and wrong, wouldn't be life-giving to them. In fact, it would bring them death. But along comes a serpent. And this serpent desires that knowledge. And so he convinces Eve to take on his destructive desire. And so Eve starts to to desire that knowledge. And so she eats of the tree, and then Adam desires what Eve desires. And so from the beginning, the Bible is unveiling this destructive mimetic desire. And then following that story, we have a story about Adam and Eve's son, Cain. And Cain becomes jealous of his brother, and his rivalry with his brother leads all the way to murder. And so now the destructive mimetic desire from the first story has blossomed to envy and rivalry and violence. And when we come to the story of Abraham a few chapters later, we actually have an out-and-out scapegoat identified in this story, and that's Hagar. And by Leviticus, we have the entire scapegoating mechanism unveiled. Right? God has humans ritualize animal sacrifice. So God knows this about us. He knows our human propensity for sacrificing scapegoats. Right? Humans have been offering sacrifice, both human and animal, long before God called Abraham. And it's as if he said, okay, humans, you feel like you need to scapegoat and sacrifice in order to prevent like, widespread violence in your society? Okay, well, I'll tell you what. Once a year, under these supervised conditions, here's how it's done. First of all, it's going to be a goat. It's not going to be one of your kids. It's not going to be a minority group. It's not going to be somebody vulnerable. It's going to be an animal. And the way that the ritual is practiced by the ancient Hebrews, it unmasks this mechanism of psychological projection that happens, right? So the priest would take the goat, and he would place his hands upon the goat, and he would confess the sins of the people from the last year onto the goat. And what this reveals is that this whole mechanism is more about our sins. It's about the sins of the people, not the sins of the scapegoat. The scapegoat is innocent. And the fact that the sins of the group are being projected onto the scapegoat is almost always hidden in human scapegoating dynamics. It's really difficult to see when it's happening. But the Jewish animal right in Leviticus clearly exposes it for what it is. Scapegoating cannot end until we take responsibility for our own sin rather than projecting it onto others. Another way that the Bible unmasks the cycle of violence is by listening to the voices of the human scapegoats. If you think about it, the Bible is one of the very few ancient texts in the world that was written by people who were not people who were in power. These were not history's winners, if you will. The Jewish people have been perpetual scapegoats and have continued to be. So I was a a history undergrad major. I see Hiromu, who's like a history professor. We know it's a truism that most of history is written by the powerful, by winners of wars, by people who were educated, who could read and write, and who could create this narrative that supports their own dominance. 
But then you have the Bible, on the other hand, which is this beautiful collection of voices of people who, for the most part, were not dominant. Right? This is part of the appeal of Judaism and Christianity to the oppressed. The Bible humanizes the scapegoat. And I think this offers us, as pastors and teachers and Christians, a way, a key to countering the scapegoating process. It's our job to humanize scapegoats in the way that the Bible humanizes them. In the Bible, we're allowed to see the effects of scapegoating happen on people like Abel and Hagar and on Joseph. Like, it's striking to me that Joseph, after he's scapegoated, you know, he's thrown into a pit by his brothers and sold into slavery. They get rid of him. The story doesn't continue from the point of view of his brothers. It continues from his point of view. We're allowed to see how that trauma played out in his life. David, Jeremiah, we're allowed to see the dehumanization. And then we come to Jesus. And we have a classic scapegoating setup. All right, when Jesus comes on the scene, there is envy and rivalry between all the various people in the land that's now Israel and Palestine. Between Jews and Romans and Samaritans, within the Jewish community, you've got the Pharisees and the Essenes and the Sadducees and the Zealots. And so all of this envy and rivalry for land and for power and for control fed into a really anxious powder keg of a system. Right? And when Jesus comes on the scene, his society is really at a breaking point. It's at the point in that cycle of violence where the group could easily turn on itself and have a civil war, which they did. About 40 years later, when the Romans came in and they crushed Jerusalem in the first Jewish-Roman war. But in the meantime, in those 40 years leading up to it, they were able to sacrifice a number of scapegoats along the way to channel their violent energy and to stave off this widespread violence for a few years. And one of those scapegoats was a rabbi from the Galilee. And Jesus was the perfect candidate to be a scapegoat. And he was a Jew in Roman-occupied territory. He was from the Galilee, which is like being from the boonies, northern Israel. He was rumored to be illegitimate. He was a mamzer. He wasn't married. He was different, and his followers were different. And so the false accusations were hurled. I'm going to start in John chapter 10 here. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts, walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you don't believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And again, his Jewish opponents. They picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, Look, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which one of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy. Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. So here they accuse him of blasphemy. It's a taboo uh, offense in his culture. He's claiming to be one with God while being only a mere man. But that accusation of blasphemy is false, right? Jesus isn't merely a man. However, the people who are making the accusations against him are only human, and they, in fact, are blaspheming against God by telling Jesus that he isn't who he says he is, right? Do we see how that works? They get to offload their own blasphemy, to offload their own inability to hear God's call to join his cause, and to project their own sin and anxiety onto Jesus himself by falsely accusing him of what they themselves are guilty of, which is blasphemy. Well, soon after this, Jesus goes along and he performs a significant miracle. He 
raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. And this inflames the tensions because people are starting to really listen to this gifted miracle worker. And so Caiaphas, who was the Jewish high priest that year, he wanted Jesus to die. We'll pick it up in John chapter 11. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, raising Lazarus, they believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and they told them what Jesus had done. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they ask? Here is this man, he's performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone is going to believe in him. And then the Romans will come and they will take away both our temple and our nation. Right, let's pause there for a second. That's what they believed was at stake. Their temple and their nation were going to be taken away. And they weren't wrong. That is actually what was at stake. It wasn't a false fear. But this is what's on the line. And so then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, he spoke up and he says, you know nothing at all. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better that one man die for the nation than that we all perish. And so from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Caiaphas knew if they could accuse Jesus of blasphemy, of trying to overthrow the Romans, that they could rally enough people to believe that Jesus was the real problem and they could put him to death to keep the peace, which is exactly what they did. They arrested Jesus and they whipped together a mob, screaming for the death of a man against whom they hadn't even heard charges. The same crowd who one week before had welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem as he came in on a donkey, singing, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even Jesus' fans fall into line when the accusations against him are made. Right? Crowds can, they can just turn on a dime. These are powerful primal forces that we're talking about. These are the same forces that are being tapped into in our society today. And our fears may be real. Just as the Sanhedrin's fears were real, but we cannot make the same mistake that Caiaphas made by focusing those fears and focusing our violent energy on the innocent and the vulnerable. So the scapegoat Jesus is then dressed like a fool. It's a false crown, purple robe, and he's beat up and disfigured so that he looks nothing like them. Right? The more different that he appears, the easier it is to dehumanize him and to kill him. And he becomes the sacrificial lamb, and he is indeed killed. And after Jesus' the scapegoat is killed, in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one of the Roman executioners is shown saying that he knew Jesus was innocent. Pilate, the Roman ruler, also knew that Jesus was innocent. The Gospel of John has him say so three times. The Gospel writers are underscoring the innocence of Jesus, and so Jesus becomes, like so many in this world, an innocent victim of the scapegoating mechanism. And this is key here, I think, for our theology of God being good. Humans killed Jesus, not God. Humans killed Jesus, not God. And it wasn't just the Jews, like so many anti-Semitic teachings have claimed through the years, and it was not just the Romans. It was Jew and Gentile alike representing all of humankind who killed Jesus. We took an innocent man and we killed him because of our sin. When scripture tells us that Jesus bore the sin of the world, he was bearing our projected anxiety and sin and shame. That's what he carried to the cross. But the thing about Jesus is that he's not like other scapegoats. First, he's not relatively innocent, like Saddam Hussein was relatively innocent. He's completely innocent. 
There's no pretending that he got what he deserved for any reason. And what this serves to expose, well, it exposes scapegoating for what it is. Right? It's a false peace at the expense of the innocent and the vulnerable. And second, Jesus isn't like other scapegoats because he doesn't stay sacrificed. He truly died, he was truly killed, but he also truly rose from the dead. Yeah, this theology demands a literal reading of the resurrection of the Christ. Because in raising his son from the dead, what Father God did was he overturned our human verdict of the scapegoat. He didn't kill his son. He overturned our human verdict of guilty. And in doing so, he declared this entire scapegoating system, the entire cycle of human violence, foolish and void. Right? It's like God is saying to humans, look, I've been trying to wean you guys off of sacrifices since the beginning. First, I had you channel this violent energy onto animals instead of people, and I had you do it under these very specific conditions. But now I declare it done. No more. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You stop doing this to each other. And that becomes the invitation to all of us humans. Following Jesus means renouncing our human propensity to take part in this violent scapegoating system, in judging other people and deciding who is in and who is out and who belongs and who does not. It harms and dehumanizes the vulnerable. And it ultimately keeps us from achieving peace. And so in light of this, I have four points that I want to flesh out for us as pastors and practitioners here of our faith. And the first is this that we are called by God and by the authors of Scripture to reject imitating the crowd and instead to imitate Jesus. This kind of goes along with what Dave is talking about with the the hero's journey, right? We're being invited out of Hobbiton. We are to reject imitating the crowd. You know, in groups, when people around us get riled up about something, we start to mimic their anger and their anxiety. It's biological in us. It happens. Gerard calls this mimetic contagion. I think we usually call it herd mentality or mob mentality. Right? It's how people do things in crowds that they say they never thought they would do. And Peter, Jesus, and the Apostle Stephen all talk about the crowd as being ignorant of what they're doing. Right? They're ignorant of mimetic contagion. It's hidden. They don't even sense it going on. Right? Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. When we're part of the mob, we feel completely innocent of doing anything wrong. Now, I owe this, this next insight to, to Ken, my colleague and co-pastor. So, you know, what can break this feeling of innocence in the mob is having an intimate encounter with Jesus that convicts us. And we see this most poignantly in the two early leaders of the church, Paul and Peter. Right? We, we would almost call this, this is what it means to convert. Right? Peter and Paul were both part of scapegoating mobs. Peter, by his silence, and denying that he knew Jesus on the night that Jesus was arrested, people are saying, do you know the vulnerable? Do you know the, the man who's being scapegoated? And he's like, no, I don't know him. And Paul was one of the ringleaders, right? As Saul, he was jailing and killing new believers. And so both of these men were convicted of their scapegoating by the gentle rebuke of Jesus. And with Peter, this encounter happened with a prophetic word that Jesus had given to him about a rooster crowing. And then later... In that scene on the beach after Jesus' resurrection when Peter and Jesus are so tenderly reunited. With Saul, or Paul, that encounter came on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's part of what I love about 
our mission about making an experience of God accessible to all. It's important for so many reasons, but this is one of them, because an experience of Jesus can actually break this violent cycle. And when we have a personal encounter with Jesus, we're invited into this relationship where we imitate Christ rather than others, right? We need Jesus' mimetic contagion. John 13, when Jesus had finished washing the disciples' feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Mimic me. Do what I do. John 13, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. I thought about reading like 15 of these verses back to back just for impact. I didn't have time to do that. But you start to see it all over Paul and the letters in the New Testament, this importance of turning our imitation instincts away from the crowd and toward Christ. And this makes more sense to me in light of Gerard. Secondly, the counterintuitive thing about this gospel message is that imitating Jesus will not always lead to peace and unity in the short run. Yeah, it will not always lead to peace and unity. Matthew 10, Jesus says, Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. And this passage of Jesus used to make no sense to me, right? He's the prince of peace. He called us to be ambassadors of peace. But in the short run, Jesus knows that standing against the mob will not bring peace. The unmasking, the scapegoat mechanism, it robs the crowd of its feeling of unity. Right? Remember, it's unifying to have a scapegoat. Right? It's unifying to have a scapegoat. It is not unifying when the scapegoat is revealed for what it is, which is a false peace at the expense of the vulnerable. And I think right now, enough people in the United States are crying out now that we can't scapegoat black people. We cannot scapegoat immigrants and Muslims. But by revealing that scapegoating mechanism, I think we're also going to live with increased tension. Right? Because we are refusing to unite against a common enemy. We are refusing and standing against going all against one. And I think we're going to have some real work to do to figure out how to live with our differences without a scapegoat. And when the powers that be can't unite us around an internal scapegoat or an internal enemy, we might see people try and unite us around an external one. So I would say, listener, beware. And in light of Gerard, the apocalyptic literature in the Bible makes so much more sense. Apocalypse just means revealing or unveiling. When we reveal and unveil this violent mechanism of scapegoating, divisions that were previously hidden are unmasked. We're seeing this in our culture. If enough witnesses talk about what Jesus has done in declaring this scapegoating system unjust, and if enough of us witnesses begin to live this out and to lay this bare for what it is, eventually God's peace will reign. That's our ultimate hope. But apocalypse may come first. So first, we need to imitate Christ. Second, we need to know imitating Christ won't always be popular with the group. It might cause division. And third, we are all part of the mob sometimes, and we need to confess our sin. See, the tendency of the majority of people in the face of a scapegoating event is to be like Peter, to blend in with the other people around the campfire, 
to be silent when asked about our affiliation with the vulnerable. Or else we protest just a little, but not enough to get us killed alongside the scapegoat, to not fully bear the price of picking up our crosses. In fact, the people who are in the crowd often view themselves as the victims in the system. I know I certainly saw this in the church dynamics at the church that fired Ken and me. You know, I was fired for being gay, for being in a relationship with my now wife. Ken was fired for not firing me. (laughs) You know, there were people using their power to declare us sinful, drive us out, false accusations. I think Ken bore actually more of the false accusations. There were also people who remained silent, who just didn't say anything at all. And then there was a group of people who tried to broker peace to keep everybody together. I think especially the people who were silent and trying to be peace, or peace brokers, they were the ones that felt like victims. It was kind of like, how could you do this to us? We kind of agree with you, but you're pushing inclusion too far too fast. We're trying to keep the group together. So if Emily and a few other people need to go to make this happen, well, let them go. Right? It's a truism of, of Girardian theory that the crowd feels victimized by the scapegoat, like a lot of white men in our culture who feel like they're the oppressed like a lot of fundamental evangelicals who feel like they're the persecuted. It's a spiritual blindness. But we have to say that all of us are susceptible to it, including me. And I think what we so often don't understand is the meaning of the unity of the Spirit. We're called to keep the unity of the Spirit in Ephesians. But that doesn't mean gathering a group of people together and doing absolutely everything we can to make sure that those same people stay together forever. That's not the unity of the spirit that's often at the expense of the vulnerable along the way. The unity of the spirit is a unity that holds diversity without making some second-class citizens. You can't say, okay, we're all on the bus. You have to sit at the back. But, you know, we're all in it together. That doesn't work. As a very wise friend and mentor of mine, the Reverend Dr. A.D. Wasink, once told me, there is no unity without justice. And I knew oh so many of those crowd-appeasing peacekeepers when I was being fired. And honestly, for me, they caused more pain than the outright accusers because they were voicing their, I'm with you. I'm with you, but I'm not. Just as I imagine that Peter's silence and Peter's blending in with the crowd was far more painful for Jesus than the accusations of the Jewish leaders. That was his friend. He was supposed to be with him. So this leads me to my fourth point. Here's the thing that I've learned from being a scapegoat. There's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness of others is expected of all of us as followers of Jesus, but reconciliation can only be accomplished when the ones who participate in the scapegoating mob can name and own their sins. When they can take personal responsibility for being part of the mob. Like in race relations in America, there will be no real reconciliation unless white people can say, I have participated in, I have benefited from white supremacist racist systems. I'm sorry, and I'm doing my best to learn. It is always up to the oppressors and not to the oppressed to do the naming and the repenting. It is always up to the oppressors and not the oppressed to do the naming and the repenting. Because if the victim names the sin against them and the oppressor doesn't acknowledge it, Oh, you know, we're post-race. Racism doesn't exist. That just re-injures the victim. 
by invalidating their experience and what they're trying to tell you that they feel. Like your perception is more keen than theirs. Let me give you another personal example. A few months back, I, I ran into someone, actually it was two people, who were pretty terrible to me during my, my public outing and firing from the vineyard. And these were congregants. And I walked into the community center in Ypsilanti, where I live, and they were sitting there outside of a racquetball court. And they're like, hey, Emily, it's so good to see you. And I was a little triggered. So I just kind of go and I do my thing. And I'm like, oh, man, they're really close to the door. I'm going to have to see them on my way out again. Okay, Lord, let's let them be distracted. They were talking, so I walked, started to go out the door. And one of them yells, hey, hey, don't you remember me? Come on, I'm trying to say hi to you, kind of aggressively. I walked out, and I was shaking. And I went to my car, and I sat there, and I took a few deep breaths, and then I walked back in. And I went up, and I said, you know, you publicly advocated for being fired because I'm gay. And you, you didn't say anything. You guys were really horrible to me. I don't consider us friends. And that might sound a little bit harsh. You know, I feel pressure, especially as a pastor, to make things like seem okay. We're all cool. But that honestly doesn't help my gospel witness, as I understand it. That says that what happened to the scapegoat was, like, okay. That it needed to happen. That it probably didn't affect me much. And all that does is serve to make scapegoating easier. It's easier for it to happen in the future if I just act like it's no big deal. Because it is a big deal. You know, I'm human. Being fired and outed, it did affect me deeply. It took me two years of trauma therapy to get through that and to be able to forgive and address it, and to be able to teach from my experience. And it's not healthy or honest for me to pretend to be friends with people who really hurt me deeply. I can forgive them, but have a boundary. I like what Desmond Tutu writes. You know, he did such deep work on on forgiveness and reconciliation in post-apartheid Africa, South Africa. He said, forgiving and being reconciled to our enemies or our loved ones is not about pretending that things are other than what they are. It's not about patting one another on the back, turning a blind eye to the wrong, right? It's not like about hugging it out after the election. True reconciliation exposes the awfulness, the abuse, the pain, the hurt, the truth. It could even sometimes make things worse. It's a risky undertaking, but in the end, it is worthwhile because in the end, only an honest confrontation with reality can bring real healing. Superficial reconciliation can only bring superficial healing. That's why I said that if somebody came to me and they owned what they did, they owned their part in the mob and they repented, there would be a chance of restored relationship. I could do it. I'd be open. But those who participate in scapegoating have to own their part for it to be safe for the scapegoat. But I should note, well, first I should say the goal is always reconciliation. But I want to note that it isn't always healthy for the victim to be reconciled to an oppressor if they've been abused. Right? Just as it's not healthy for a battered woman to go back to someone who abused her just because that person said they were sorry. Forgive, yes. Reconcile, maybe not. It might not even be healthy for that battered woman to be reconciled with people who watched the abuse but didn't do anything to stop it. So all of these dynamics, as I've been reading them through Gerard and Jesus and then living them, have really opened my eyes a bit more, I think, to how Jesus and the New Testament writers were talking about our relationship with God. We can't gloss over Jesus' death like it was no big deal, like it didn't affect him. Right? He became a human. It affected him deeply. He's forgiven us for what we've done, but we really can't be reconciled until we confess our sins. We have to confess that we're part of the mob that killed Jesus, and we have to repent of the scapegoating and of not loving God and our neighbor like we could. 
And when we repent, we're told that Jesus is faithful and just, and not only will he forgive us, but he actually wants to renew our relationship. He's able to do that and be reconciled with us. And then we are to go and invite other people into this movement of forgiveness and reconciliation, of doing that hard work to bring about the kingdom of God on earth, to bring about a true peace. And the work of reconciliation is hard, right? It actually has to expose the abuses and the harms. But that can bring a deep healing. And for me, this is a compelling story. Right? This is a story I could tell my old roommate from Hong Kong. And he asked me, like, what did God killing his son have anything to do for humans? Well, first, I don't think God ever required death in payment for sin. I don't think he ever required death in payment for sin. The little, the little Christian fundamentalist in the back of my head says, but the wages of sin is death. Somebody had to pay. But I don't think that bit in Romans 6 is actually what Paul was talking about. The wages of sin, the wages of eating, not from the tree of life, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eating from that tree where we feel like we can judge other people and exclude them, the wages of that is death. It is not good for us humans. But God never called for death as a payment for ransom. And so I would tell my friend that it it seems true that humanity is prone to scapegoating vulnerable, innocent people to achieve group peace. And in my faith, we're told that God became human in the form of Jesus to come down and become one of those long line of scapegoats in order to expose this injustice for what it is. That Jesus is the God of the victims. And the gospel stories tell us that God overturned our human verdict of this innocent man in order to show us that this isn't the way to manage peace and conflict. He told us we are to stop killing innocent people and harming them and abusing them and treating them as second-class citizens to achieve a false peace. Come and join us. Join us as standing with the victims and the vulnerable. And I could see my friend, knowing him, saying, well, I already, I already kind of do that. And I think I could reply, well, you know, in my faith, Jesus says that there are sheep that are not of this fold, that he tends to. And so perhaps we're of the same spirit. I believe that there are people of other faiths who also live their lives open to love and acceptance and of accepting and protecting the scapegoat who give water to the thirsty and food to the hungry who are our brothers and sisters. But the reason I was in Tibet, even with that mindset, is I would still love them to know who Jesus is by name. Because my personal relationship with Jesus is powerful and meaningful, and it's a gift that I would want the whole world to have. Right? God's spirit is so much bigger than the box we want to draw around it. It is out there, it is unleashed, and it is drawing people in. And so I might tell my friend also that, you know, we might think that we're not part of the mob, but sometimes we are, just by being Americans. I think some other people in the world would say that we are. Try as we may. But there's something in my faith that offers us the ability to tap into something more, and that thing is called the Holy Spirit. And it's funny, because in Greek, the word used for Holy Spirit is paraclete, right? And the word paraclete means the advocate. Now, isn't that funny, that the Hebrew word for Satan means the accuser? Right? So I could tell my friend, gosh, you know, we feel like we can tap into this larger spirit that I would call the Spirit of God, It's a spirit of love. We believe it holds the entire universe together. It's moving us toward peace and justice. And it's a spirit of the advocate. And we stop our scapegoating ways. When I would say when we convert, so to speak, we stop operating out of the spirit of the accuser, the spirit of the Satan, the spirit of the mob, and we start acting in the spirit of the advocate, advocating for the vulnerable. And the thing about tapping into this spirit 
which we have tools to do, is that we're not just tapping into this for other people, but this Holy Spirit is also advocating for us. It's advocating for our life so that we know what our next step is, that this Holy Spirit, this advocate, is trying to guide us on a life that will bring us meaning and connection and health. Who wouldn't want to try and tap into that? You know, I was struck by Dave's story, um, a couple of your stories last night, because you're talking about how like, almost like an experience of Jesus was then, like the experience happened first and then sort of the conviction, right? It's the Spirit who leads us into all truth. It's the Spirit who convicts. So if we can introduce people to the Spirit of the Advocate, we can trust that Jesus is going to start leading them into all truth. It's a very powerful tool that we offer the world. Let me just end with this. I would say to you, as my Blue Ocean peers, that if we want to be a diverse movement, if we want to be a movement that's safe for people of color, for queer people, if we want to be safe for people who have been on the outside, who have been um, victims of colonization, if we want to be safe for churches um, that are non-majority churches, that I think we really have to have an understanding. We have to get our fingers around this theology of the oppressed, right? It's what Angie was talking about. We have to have a theology that isn't just about power and conquering and Jesus as Lord and King, which are all good, but we have to understand Jesus as the victim, that Jesus is the one who is advocating for those who have been on the outside. That's part of what makes our message accessible to everyone. We have to understand that protecting the unity, it's a unity of diversity, that when we're all sitting at the table together, we are sitting there as equals, and Jesus knows what it feels like to have not been treated as the equal. And our hope then, as, as we do this, we will be creating a more just and peaceful society. Right? That is the Christian hope. So my friend from Hong Kong, he could believe and be cynical that the world is just going to hell in a handbasket. But I like what my wife says. She says, believe the better story. What's the better story? We offer hope. I think we offer a very powerful, powerful sense of hope and meaning to people. Let me close in prayer. So Jesus, we we thank you so much that you are a God of the victim and of the oppressed. We thank you that you are thoroughly good. We thank you that you came to expose some of the false paths that we try to take to achieve peace. And you invite us into doing the deeper and the harder work that will lead to a long-lasting peace, the peace that passes understanding. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask you, the spirit of the advocate, the spirit of Jesus, the scapegoat, that you would just be here infusing us, Lord, that you would help us to imitate you in all things, that you would give us wisdom out in the wider world, Lord, especially as we are addressing some things that look like our scapegoating going on, that we would be bold and courageous in our defense of the vulnerable, and that we would be able to receive your tremendous mercy and grace when we fall short of that. We repent for being part of the mob. May your spirit show us and convict us in the places where we are missing it, Lord. And may our arms be open wide. Give us wisdom and courage. Those are my prayers, Lord. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen.